Good morning, Sanctuary. We just started the Advent season, and uh, this is our third week as we sort of anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus. And um, I, lo I love the seasons that we celebrate in the church calendar. I didn't used to. When I was younger, I used to get mad even at the celebration of Christmas and Easter because I thought some people would only show up for those two days, and I would think, man, Christmas is Christmas all year long around for the believer, and Easter... It's supposed to be all day, all year round. We're supposed to always celebrate the resurrection. And I kind of, you know, had a bad attitude about making any day special until I had kids. And then I started thinking, you know, you know, they're around every day. We enjoy them every day. But, but then we'd have these birthdays and we'd stop and think about who they were in our lives and celebrate them. And I started thinking, you know, there's these holidays and these seasons, there's, there's aspects of the story that we stop and let inform us. So in Advent is the season where we stop and we realize and recognize that things are not as they should be. And we enter into the kind of angst of the longing for the first appearing of Jesus. And uh, not only are things not as they should be, but the notion or the hope that Christ is coming or that God is coming into the world. And so when we enter into Advent, we enter into that kind of of remembrance and we let that uh, the indications and the implications of that of that season form us and touch us the same with Christmas tide we celebrate joy to the world the Lord has come or epiphany when God makes himself known in a way that he hadn't been known right and we celebrate that like the uh, uh, through the um, magi and how they you know discovered this uh, seemingly undercover deal going on. Jesus had come into the world as the king of the world. So those kinds of things. And then Lent is the period where Jesus was preparing his life, at, you know, in terms of fasting and openness for his ministry. And so we enter into that moment and let that affect us. And then, of course, uh, Good Friday and Easter and Pentecost, all of these things, these seasons, very intentionally form us. And I found out it's helpful. Man, I need all the help I can get to stay fresh, to stay open, to stay um, uh, encouraged, uh, have some sense of revival in my soul. Just like in a marriage, you know, you need to do fun things like dating or different things that you do that you remember, anniversaries that you help remember, oh, this is what this relationship is about. This is why I got captured by this person. The, the holidays, the seasons, particularly of the calendar, that's what they help us do. So I hope they're, you, you're finding this formative for you. All right, so here we are in the midst of Advent, and uh, our gospel reading once again speaks about John the Baptist. Um, and we read from John 1, what we just heard, I'll just read a part of it. Then they said to him, who are you? Uh, let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make the straight way for the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. What I love about this text in John is that, you know, John's kind of an odd bird, right? And and yet he, when he talks about his self-identity, he picks something up from the prophets. And I, I think about that. I think about how often we in our culture tend to think about ourselves in terms of how much success we've had or how effective we think we are or based on things like wealth or beauty or status, uh, position, all that kind of stuff. And here's John saying, hey, I'm I read, I, I read Isaiah and I, I see myself there. And I think, man, I think that would be so helpful for us to not quite identify and see ourselves just in what we do or what we look like or any of those kind of things. Uh, but to think, 
there I am, I'm, I'm a new creature in Christ, or, or I'm the beloved of God, I'm not an accident, or you know, just these kinds of beautiful images, I'm part of the church of Christ. If we would let the prophets and the scriptures give us identity, I think we'd, we'd get a lot further in our spirituality. John, it turns out, is a central character in the, uh, in the whole Advent story, which is why he keeps appearing in these uh, lectionary readings. Remember that John was the cousin of Jesus and had a, a connection not only you know, just naturally, relationally, but also supernaturally. You remember the story in Luke, Jesus uh, has, is now in Mary's womb. And Mary, I mean, obviously this is a pretty scandalous story on the natural level. So she goes and she goes to a place where fe she feels safe. And where that is was where her uh, aunt uh, Elizabeth is. And here um, it says that uh, the text reads, this is in Luke 1, at that time Mary got up and hurried to a town in the city, in the hills country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, and she was carrying, Elizabeth was carrying, John the Baptist. And when uh, uh, Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, the baby, John the Baptist, leaps inside of, Mary, inside of Elizabeth's womb. Uh, and, and Elizabeth then, filled with the Holy Spirit, says in a loud voice, blessed are you among women. She's saying this to um, Mary. And blessed is the child you bear. So she doesn't spout on about, man, what's going on? How did this happen? You know, nothing about the natural. Something of the Spirit. John, in the womb of his mom, leaps because of the presence of Jesus in the womb of Mary. There's something going on here that's more than normal. I mean, something significant was beginning with this appearance of, of, of Jesus in the womb of Mary. I wish we had more of the backstory, right, of how John grows up and how Jesus grows up, their cousins, I mean, how they, how they might have connected and what might have happened, what those conversations were like. Um, but in some way, not only is there a natural connection to Jesus, there's this spiritual, supernatural, Holy Ghost story thing going on. Uh, it's significant to note that the book of Malachi, which ends in the Old Testament for the Christian, um, and it, it ends, and then there's this whole 400 period, long period that's kind of quiet. There are no prophets. And then all of a sudden entered uh, the story of Jesus. But in that period, the way Malachi ends is it claims that Elijah's going to return. And that when Elijah returns, that God is going to be the next person that's going to appear in the, in the redemption story. So God's appearing was to be the first evidence, the first sign of a new age, an age that would replace the old one with a new one, which is later called in the New Testament, the new creation. So when Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist, he makes a statement to his disciples. He says, Jesus replied, this is in Matthew 17, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. And then the text says the disciples immediately understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Somehow, 
John is this Elijah figure. Elijah, you remember in the Old Testament, doesn't die. He actually just goes to heaven. So there's this anticipation in the cultural memory of the Jews that Elijah is going to somehow reappear. So Jesus said, yeah, he did in John the Baptist. And the significance of that is once Elijah appears or reappears, God will come. And John then, his whole purpose was to give voice to the fact that God is coming. His whole kind of um, position, as it were, in the story of redemption is to announce that the end of, uh, to really announce an end of former things, an end of what has been, and that, and a former era, and that there's a new one that's coming that's dawning in our very midst. He was this kind of um, transitional figure that stood between these two places, right? Uh, the world as it has been and the world that is going to be because of the advent, because of the coming of the Savior. So John is this kind of advent person and he's being used to close out the old and to bring in the new. And this is why advent is often called the season of last things because what it's really speaking to is referring to the way things have been um, they're going to be fading away because God is coming on the scene and as God appears on the scene, things become new, which is the celebration of Christmas. One of the strange aspects of this whole story about the old and the new is that the new isn't all that overwhelming when it appears. I mean, it, it doesn't come, the new doesn't come in power to quash the old and to establish the new right? Like you would expect. I mean, it doesn't happen in a twinkling of an eye. Um, it, it seems like it should. I mean, when one kingdom is taken over by another kingdom, it's usually because that new kingdom is, is more powerful and demonstrative and just quashes the other one. But this revolution, this new that comes is not like that. It's not an overstatement. It doesn't come in a kind of open power. In fact, this kingdom starts with a vulnerable baby in a manger in some really obscure tiny village, right, in Israel. And other than Jesus' parents and uh, some of his close relatives like Elizabeth um, and John uh, you, you, and, and a few shepherds, right, in the middle of that, and a couple of magi, right, so three, supposedly three, however many there were, we don't know, of these uh, people that were looking at the stars, following it to where Jesus was. Most people didn't catch a glimpse of this new. It was present, but it wasn't demandingly present, and it wasn't immediately obvious that this was the new day, a new creation. Uh, my point is, is that the new came in a way that was sort of <laughs> underwhelming and really consistent with some of the stories Jesus told about how the kingdom of God works one of them, you recall, is one of his parables was about the mustard seed. And he points out how the mustard seed is just this tiny thing amongst all the plants, one of the tiniest seeds. And he said, yet it grows into one of the largest plants in the garden. So what he's saying is that um, the new, when it comes, it, it isn't coming in some domineering way. It's tiny, 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 easily missed but as it grows, it eventually will overtake the old, overtake anything else that might be present around it. Jesus, if you recall, 
is called by John as well, the light of the world. And um, it's he's a light that shines in darkness. But the darkness isn't instantly overtaken. Uh, and it won't be until what theologians call the eschaton. That's the space where God finishes his redemptive work. Um, Revelations 21 describes this, how, how at some point darkness won't be. And the text says, this is Revelation 21, in kind of a cryptic way, uh, quote, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp, the lamb is the lamp, end quote. See, this is a Bible way, an apocalyptic way of saying, there's no more darkness anymore. <laughs> so somewhere after this new has come, the full of the darkness of the old is gone, but there's a time when they both live in each other's presence, the light and the dark. So John, he comes to speak of a light that's coming into the world and that the darkness, the old ways, are going to start diminishing, start dying. So Jesus then was the start of the new creation. And so what we're, we're celebrating in this season is the reality that both are present. I mean, and the rub about the idea of the old creation that's diminishing is that it doesn't diminish without a fight. There's a way as the new comes in and the old begins to dissipate, that there's a, a wrestle, a wrestle for the new coming in and a wrestle for the old giving way. Um, this is why John references Isaiah when he's preaching. And he, he brings some violent images. He's talking about, actually the quote from Isaiah 40 goes, let every valley be lifted up, so it's changed. Let every mountain and hill be made low. All right, that's some dramatic change. He said, the uneven ground, plain, and the rugged terrain, a broad valley. So there's this idea of, of changing the terrain, which is a violent thing. And he said, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So. You remember Jesus made this statement too. He talked about how the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and, and uh, people uh, who are, are, are violent take it by force. In other words, men of violence take it by force. That's how he said it in one translation. He's not talking about violence against people. He's talking about if, if you're gonna deal with stuff that's between you and God, it, it's not, it, doesn't easily, it doesn't easily give way. That there's some level of violence. Even the notion of repentance, which is, the notion of changing your mind, doing a 180. It's this idea of moving, this idea of switching, this idea of uprooting and moving to a new place that you weren't. These are violent kind of ideas because you're opening the way for the new by rejecting and putting out, stiff-arming the ways and the patterns and the processes of the old. Very violent thing. Um, it's reminiscent of Jeremiah where... Uh, God speaks to him about his, Jeremiah's ministry to Israel. And uh, I mean, it's wonderful to think about, I have a ministry that's gonna build people and encourage people. But God says to Jeremiah, this is in Jeremiah 1.10, God says to Jeremiah, see today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms, and listen, to uproot, tear down, to destroy, and overthrow, and then to build and to plant. So two thirds of the ministry of Jeremiah was destructive. It was to uproot, tear down, destroy, overthrow before he could possibly build and plant. This is the tension of Advent. 
It's the idea that there's as much violence as there is the hope of the new peace of a new age, a new creation. Um, bottom line is, to bring in the new, John had to make trouble with the old structures and um, expectations. And not only did he make trouble, he got into trouble for it to the point where he ends up imprisoned and ultimately he was beheaded. I think what, what the Lord is saying to us through texts like this and the story of John is that all followers of Jesus are in some way living in the same space that John lived. And we are to live out our lives in this world in the same kind of position that John lived. We were to look around and realize that, that even though Jesus has come and the new is dawning, the old has not fully gone and the new has not fully come, right? We live in what theologians call the eschatological tension, which is to say that the kingdom is here, but not yet fully here. It's here, but not yet. And uh, what surrounds us in our walkabout lives um, stands against the promise that what will be as the Savior appears in the spaces that we now inhabit. It, it, there's a tension, there's a, a disconnect, there's a, uh, it seems like they're polarized against each other. And we're to give voice to that, that the old may be here, but it's being overtaken by the new. And we're to contend for that. That's why we always pray as we gather the, and pray the Our Father in this prayer. We say, let thy kingdom come, let thy will be done on earth as in heaven. So we're contending that the rule God's new creation will begin to push back the old that's present and that there's a new dawn. You see, this is the cry of Advent, people. And so when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about <laughs> that really we just need to take some lessons from the Baptist, right? From John the Baptist. And one of the first lessons, I think, I got two of them I wanted to tell you. One of the first ones is uh, we can learn from the Baptist is that uh, John didn't fit in I mean, his food he ate was weird food. His uh, clothes that he wore were crazy clothes. His focus on life, his willingness to lose. You remember he had great influence and all of a sudden as Jesus comes forward, he loses influence. He addresses that appropriately. His life, all, everything he did, he was just an odd guy and he didn't always fit in. And when I think about myself, it this kind of challenges me because I often realize I've got this great impulse to fit in. <laughs> I mean, I want people to like me. And uh, when you bring light in the midst of darkness, it's a, it's a little bit like going into a room of sleeping people in the middle of the night and popping on the light. I mean, what you get is a lot of people groaning and saying, what are you doing? There's just something about bringing light in darkness that isn't always received well. And I don't like feeling like I'm the odd man out. I'd rather just fit in. There's a temptation to just go to sleep, right? Truth is, um, all of us, I think, deal with this. So what about you? I mean, do you love to fit in? I mean, uh, do you resist being odd? Because at the end of the day, Advent people have to be okay with odd. I mean, um, we have to find our, our metaphorical kind of equivalents of uh, eating bugs and wearing weird, uncomfortable clothes. What does that mean for you? if you want to be a person that gives voice for the coming of the Lord.
we need to process it. Secondly, I think we learned from the Baptists that uh, uh, if if we're going to be an Advent people, we have to be okay with uh, getting in trouble when we shed light on stuff, things that aren't right. The Apostle Paul said this present evil age is how he refers to the time in which we lived. Uh, it's an, an era and a time when routine horrors take place. And we're not supposed to be okay with that. I mean, we're not, when we try to confront things that are wrong, we're not supposed to carry this kind of better than thou attitude or a judgy attitude or a mean attitude toward people. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, he says, when you're um, ministering to someone about the truth, he said, always do it with gentleness and respect. So, so we're not supposed to be kind of attitude, you know, negative attitude and judgy attitude of people. We're just supposed to shine light on the power of darkness in a way that's loving and kind and submissive, but we're to do it. So think about the places, you know, in your life where um, darkness might be uh, residing and ask yourself, are you willing to be the kind of people Jesus said where we dare to be light? <laughs> you know, the light like he is and the light that's on a city, he said, um, that can't be covered, the light of the world. And, and what do you do? I mean, whether it's darkness in your place where you work or darkness in the church you might encounter or darkness in your home or maybe when you look in the mirror, you kind of start saying, mm, I don't like these things I'm seeing. There's some darkness in you or your responses or your attitudes. The question is, are you willing to dare to lovingly and appropriately and in a timely way? Because sometimes you can't just shine light anytime you want to because it's going to create problems when you're not in a place to have a voice. There's a time for everything. But when there's time, will you speak to it? Will you shed light on it? So, as you face this Advent, what are you willing to push back on? I mean, are you willing to, to lose as you embrace the promises of hope, the promise of God's appearing? The New Testament would call a person like that a soldier. Let me finish with these words again from Fleming Rutledge, beautiful. She says, quote, whenever we do the right thing in spite of its cost, we are doing what Christian soldiers do. We are standing our ground. It may not be a very big piece of ground, but it is the one God has given us to hold. And it will be part of God's new world in the great liberation. Let the news go forth. God is on the move. He is creating a new humanity. You and I belong to it. Let us honor the master by holding our piece of territory and by remembering the needs of the least of these, his brethren. Rejoice, rejoice believers, and let your lights appear. Amen.